0: eventually organize enough workers that they could call one big strike uh, that would um, lay siege to the means of production and bring the capitalists to their knees and force them to relinquish uh, the means of production, the control of society, and, and allow these workers to establish what they call the workers' commonwealth.
1: That's University of Colorado law professor Ahmed White. On today's show, White discusses his new book on the industrial workers of the world, Under the Iron Heel, The Wobblies, and The Capitalist War on Radical Workers. Today's show is the first of a three-part interview with White on the Labor Exchange, Colorado's only labor-focused radio show, which airs Mondays at 6 p.m. Mountain Time on KGNU Community Radio in Boulder, Colorado. You can hear parts two and three at laborradionetwork.org. Just search for Labor Exchange. And on Labor History in Two...
2: The year was 1998. If you were trying to drive to work on that Tuesday morning in Midtown Manhattan, you were probably late. 40,000 construction workers took to the streets in a massive protest. They shut down more than 200 building
1: projects. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is Labor History Today.
0: You can tell them in the country, tell them in the town. The miners down in Mingle laid their shovels down. We won't pull another pillow another ton. Or
1: lift another finger tell the union we have won. Stand up bosses know. Turn your buckets over, turn your lanterns low. There's
0: fire in her heart in her soul, but there ain't gonna be no far in the hole.
3: This is the Labor Exchange on KGNU Boulder, Denver, and Fort Collins. I'm your host, Robert Lindgren, with the Colorado AFL-CIO and Denver Newspaper Guild. On this episode, we have author and University of Colorado law professor, Ahmed White, to discuss his new book on the industrial workers of the world called The Iron Heel, The Wobblies and the Capitalist War on Radical Workers. Welcome to the Labor Exchange, Professor White.
0: Oh, thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Great.
3: Uh, we would like to start our show by getting to know our guests. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
0: Yes, you uh, you you noted I teach at the University of Colorado at the law school. I've been there about 20, 23 years or so. Um, and I taught a couple of other places, but I've spent most of my career there. I'm originally from uh, from Louisiana. Uh, grew up on a farm down there and I've um, I've been writing about labor. And uh, labor history and labor repression for um, most of my career, but, but particularly in the last uh, 10 or 15 years. I did a book about um, the Little Steel Strike in the 1930s, an important and violent uh, struggle during that period. And uh, this is my second book uh, about the Wobblies. <laughs>
3: Yeah and I think our audience may be a little more familiar than than a, than than most but can you start by introducing our listeners to the industrial workers of the world the IWW also known as the wobblies
0: Yeah a lot of people know about the wobblies but not enough um uh, not, not enough um the organization was founded in 1905 uh in Chicago by a group of um mostly radicals and reformers so radicals at the center of that uh, of that effort, socialist, uh, some anarchist, um, and some industrial unionist, with the idea of organizing the entire industrial working class um, into what they imagine would be uh, one big union. Um, their and their notion here, and they were a radical organization. Their notion here was to eventually organize enough workers that they could call one big strike. Uh, that would um, lay siege to the means of production and bring the capitalists to their knees and force them to relinquish uh, the means of production, the control of society, and and allow these workers to establish what they call the workers' commonwealth. Uh, so it's quite a remarkable organization. They never came close to pulling that off, uh, but they certainly became large enough and threatening enough to get themselves persecuted and thrown in prison in large numbers, Uh, and that's kind of the story that that I end up telling uh, in in the book here. And the Union contained in its ranks some uh, relatively well-known people, Big Bill Hayward, William Dudley. Big Bill Hayward was uh, the leader of the organization for most of the period that I write about. Um, There are people like Frank Little that some folks know was assassinated in um, Butte, Montana in uh, the summer of 1917. Um, people like Elizabeth Gurley Flynn was associated with the organization for some time. So it's a, it's a storied organization, uh, legendary in a lot of ways, and, and rightly so.
3: Yeah, and then you 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 hinted at this in the in in your answer, but in the book you lay out a legal strategy that opponents of the wobblies used to criminalize their organizing and their free speech work. Can you explain a bit of how that came about and what types of laws uh, they were able to pass? These opponents of the IWW.
0: Sure. So the IWW was again founded in 1905. It 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 floundered around a bit uh, for about a. A decade or so. Uh, it led some important strikes in Lawrence, Massachusetts in 1912, for instance, the Bread Roses strike, uh, a big one a year after that in Patterson, New Jersey. But the one thing it could never really do during that period was build itself a stable membership. Well, it figured things out in the next decade, beginning around 1916. Uh, the union began to make considerable headway organizing migratory workers, uh, mainly west of the Mississippi River. And uh, as it became more successful in doing that, it made more powerful enemies. Um, It was the Union's misfortune that its rise coincided with uh, America's entry into the First World War. And that ended up being important because that was one of the bases on which the Union was criminalized. So in more specific answer to your question, um, the idea that the Union's adversaries had, and this included big capitalists out West and and a lot of important politicians, governors, senators, Woodrow Wilson himself. Uh, The strategy they had was simple. It was to make being a member of the union a crime. Um, They had to do that in a way, though, that that would be lawful. They couldn't just enact a law that said anyone who's a member of the Industrial Workers of the World is a criminal. And so they did a couple of other things instead. Uh, One thing they did Uh, uh, was to use uh, the country's entry into the war. Um, In 1917, the Congress enacted uh, the Espionage Act. It's still on the books, if you know the story of Julian Assange and uh, Edward Snowden and people like that. It's been amended a lot uh, since then. But as it was enacted in 1917, it contained a provision that made it a crime to interfere with the war effort. Um, That was enacted with the idea that it would be used against Wobblies, members of the IWW, as well as socialists and other uh, dissidents. Um, And so that was one thing. The other thing that was done that same year, um, Idaho enacted the first so-called criminal syndicalism statute. Uh, What this did was make it a crime to be um, someone who advocated industrial or political change was the language the laws used by means of crime or sabotage or other forms of violence, and also to make it a crime to be a member of an organization that advocated that. It didn't necessarily do that kind of thing. It was enough merely to advocate that kind of revolutionary change. If you're a member of an organization that did that, uh, then you could be prosecuted for a felony. And then the third major thing that was done to criminalize the IWW was to make use of uh, vagrancy laws. They were already on the books everywhere, uh, the county level, the municipal levels, in some cases at the state level. These laws were extremely broadly worded. Um, that was the whole point behind them. They, they were um, devised so that anyone essentially could be charged with vagrancy if he, if he or she couldn't give a good account of himself. Well, this was tailor-made to prosecute wobblies. They roamed around a lot, um, and, and especially the, in this period, when many of them were migratory workers, uh, and, and thousands and thousands of them were simply charged with vagrancy It was a misdemeanor crime which meant you didn't get a lot of procedural protection and it was very easy to prosecute people just a couple minutes and the, the case was over you were in jail, or you were being run out of town. And so these were the three main ways that the union was uh, was criminalized. There were other cases where union members were framed or prosecuted in circumstances where they shouldn't have been for more conventional crimes, murder in particular. Uh, but those cases, although very serious, were pretty uncommon. <clears throat>
3: Well, and and with the vagrancy laws, in your book you lay out that basically these workers were needed. Um, you, you go into more detail on on sort of why there was you know a need during um, harvesting or other times uh, for a lot of workers. But often that need um, would be turned off and off, like on and off, like a light switch where, you know, you needed one minute and we really are appreciative to have you. And then very soon after, you need to get out of here as soon as possible. Um, can you go into a little bit of that dynamic and how the the need for labor, um, you know, was used during this time?
0: Oh, sure. That And that's that's been a longstanding function of vagrancy laws, kind going to regulate the flow of labor, uh, get people out of town when they're not needed or arrest them. Uh, on threat of um, or arrest them in a way that compelled them to work. Uh, either you're arrested for vagrancy, you're convicted of vagrancy, the sentence is you're going to have to work, or you better get to work, or we're going to prosecute you for vagrancy. This has been done for centuries, really, with vagrancy laws. But you're quite right; it was used very pointedly when the IWW began to organize migratory workers, and nowhere more so than on um, on the high plains, um, just east of here. Um, where then, uh, as well as now, uh, the dominant crop was wheat and the Wobblies organized the migratory workers who were needed every summer to bring in the harvest. Um, and so they were prosecuted for vagrancy when too many came to town, um, they were prosecuted for vagrancy more particularly when being organized in the IWW, they tried to hold out for higher wages, um, what would happen is these workers would congregate in small towns waiting to be employed by farmers. And if the wage rate wasn't what they wanted, they would not work. And that meant they had to hang around in town. That made them vagrants. And the police would come and arrest them and basically say, you either get to work uh, or we're going to put you in jail or we'll you know run you out of town or beat you or whatever it may be. And if you were an IWW organizer, and many people were, then you were subject to even more focused attention and, and, and more readily prosecuted, uh, for vagrancy. It was a, it was a pretty effective way of undermining the, these organizing efforts.
3: Yeah. And I'm going to come back to this topic, but I'm going to, I want to uh, go into a little bit more of, uh, you as a writer and your writing process. So, um, I've been to the wonderful labor archive at the university of Colorado and, and read those dynamic direct sources that, that they really do leap from the page, but, but my notes tend to end up really dry, or, or worse, boring. Um, you know, in your, how do you translate your research that you're doing from direct sources like this into the dynamic, you know, novel-like prose that I, I hear when I read your book? Another way of saying this is, what's your advice to, uh, to authors looking to emulate, you know, your style of writing?
0: Well, I, I, I tell you, I, I started out this project some years ago, six, seven, eight years ago. Uh, as a book about criminal syndicalism laws. And at some point along the way, I figured out something that should have been obvious to me early on. Uh, no one wants to read a book about laws. They want to read a book about people. And that goes to your question. Uh, I think the key is to make a story like this about people, um, to try to find out uh, as much as you can about them as human beings. And that ended up being quite I think, relevant in this project, because one of the things I try to do with this book is write a book about the way repression worked, because I I don't think that's the kind of thing that's gotten enough attention, whether you're talking about the IWW or the Communist Party or whoever, um, that there's been a tendency, some exceptions, but there's been a tendency, a longstanding tendency to write about repression in this kind of detached way um, without looking at what it did to the people who were repressed, um, how it did its work. and the way it did its work was to undermine to often destroy the lives of these people, to break them. Um, and 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 these laws did that even though the wobblies were extraordinarily courageous in the face of what happened to them. but but you know, every person has uh, has his or her limits and um, their limits were often reached. But I think that was an important way of doing what you point to, uh, which is to uh, take these sources um, and this story, which could be in some ways very dry and distant from people after all this happened a hundred years ago and make it something that people today can relate to, um, to get to want of a better word, the the human side of this. And so one of the things I try to do in the book that I consciously do in the book is, it's kind of, follow some people through this story, this chapter in history, and, and not just prominent people of the sort I mentioned earlier, Big Bill Hayward, for instance, but also everyday wobblies, uh, folks that almost no one uh, has ever heard of, and, and tell their story. And uh, I'm, I'm not sure how successful I am with that, but I, I tried to do that, and I, I think it did bring um, a more human element um, to the narrative.
3: Well, I'll say I haven't just read the book. I feel you were successful in that. I feel like you really do connect with some of the uh, characters, the real people um, whose lives were affected by this this repression that you you, you, you discuss. Um, a lot of the book focuses on IWW's organizing of agricultural workers and lumber workers. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Um, you know what made that organizing initially successful and um, some of the you know, some of the things that they were pushing for within that organizing around those those two industries?
0: Yes, that's a that's a great question. That's a key issue. I mentioned earlier the IWW floundering for its first decade before it kind of found its footing. Well, the way it found its footing uh, was by devising a new means of organizing workers. And that involves something called, uh, usually called a job delegate system. Basically, the idea was to uh send organizers out among the workers to be organized rather than to have those organized organizers remain stationary, waiting for the workers to come to them. Um, The other thing that this new system of organizing put a premium on inherently was to uh, use, not only use the workers themselves, uh, but, but, but workers... But to to open the ranks of organizing to almost any worker who wanted to be an organizer. And so it democratized organizing to an extraordinary degree. Again, just about anybody could be a job delegate. And then they would follow along with these, again, typically migratory workers in uh, industries like agriculture, like lumber, a little bit later on, uh, construction, um, oil, uh, a couple of other industries. Well, the union first uh, devised this method in lumber, but it first used it in, um, in, in, in on a significant scale in agriculture. And within a short period of time, uh, what this did was um, create a significant flow of dues into an organization that by 1914, 1915 was nearly bankrupt and almost essentially no money and very few members. And with that Inflow of revenue, the organization was able then to sponsor more organizing. Um, that led to the formation in 1917 of a dedicated lumber affiliate to match a delegated, a, a dedicated rather, um, agricultural affiliate. Uh, and those two affiliates, the lumber workers' industrial union and the agricultural workers' industrial union became the two main pillars of IWW organizing from 1916 1917, up through the mid-1920s, when the organization um, essentially had, by which time the organization had essentially become um, defunct
3: thank you so much for that the iww still exists as an organization and right now it's it's sort of a, a you know a small group you, you see people out at rallies once in a while with an iww uh, shirt on but it's more of a signal of of the type of of unionist they are i guess more than
0: yeah and you know they're trying to rebuild the organization and and more power to them uh but i, I think even the most ardent wobbly today would would have to admit that the the heyday of this organization was uh, the late 19 teens and early 1920s, and and it continued to exist in some fashion all through the 20th century. In fact, in 1927, as I tell in the book, the the union kind of took control of uh, a very very significant strike right here in Colorado, um, a coal strike up and down the Front Range that uh, tragically resulted in um, in in the deaths of um, of about eight people all of them union people during that period. And so there were kind of flashes in the pan. the union also organized a little bit later. Uh, the workers building the the um, the Boulder Dam, what was then called the Boulder Dam in Nevada. but for all intents and purposes, for most intents and purposes, by 1925 uh, the union was it was busted.
3: Yeah. And, and you, you conclude the book with that story around the, the 27 strike. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Um, the, the issues, what they were fighting for, uh, it was a statewide strike or at least it was focused up here, but then there were some statewide solidarity actions and, and, uh, just go into a little, and then maybe, um, talk a little bit about the Colorado connection to the wobblies, Big Bill Haywood, um, and the Western Federation of Miners.
0: That's right. So, um, so to answer the, the 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 first question first, yes, the 1927 strike was an interesting and again a very tragic episode in Colorado. Uh the union um was was battered and busted, as I mentioned earlier, but there were still some stalwarts, and one of them was a very interesting guy uh called A. S. Embry. Uh he had um by uh the early 20s, he was a About the most prominent IWW who wasn't in prison. Uh, Most of the leadership was locked up or out on bail or or something like that, but not Embry. Uh, Embry was still out organizing. Well, uh, he didn't remain a free man for long uh, because he was prosecuted and imprisoned in um, Idaho for criminal syndicalism. Um, Well, Embry got out uh, and like a small number of dedicated Wobblies, he wasn't done yet. And he and some other Wobblies managed to um, both organize and kind of take hold of this strike here in Colorado, which, was, again, was a coal strike. Um, over the usual issues of uh, a combination of uh, an organizing strike and a strike over wages and, and working conditions, which, needless to say, in coal mining back then were were pretty uh, were pretty terrible, and it was met with vicious repression, including a shooting uh, in November of 1927 uh, at um, what was ironically called a, a column, the Columbine Mine in uh, a hamlet called Cernay near Erie, uh, here in, uh, in in Boulder County, uh, where the state police, during a picket line fracas, uh, opened fire on the workers and and killed. Um, I think six of them, of whom most of them were were, were, were Greeks, uh, it turns out. So uh, you can go today to the cemetery in Lafayette, I think the northeast corner of that cemetery. Uh, there's a common grave for, that contains most of the the men who were killed in that incident. And then um, a couple months later, there was another fracas down in Walsenburg, where the police killed um, two people. Um, that strike was broken. And it was broken by the usual combination of repression and the inherent economic strength of these employers. Uh, So that's goes to an interesting point about the book and about this kind of research where you often ask, I'm often asked, um, what's the role of repression in breaking these organizations and breaking the strikes they lead? Well, it's, it's hard to say what role repression played apart from uh, these other factors, and on some level, it's it's impossible to say. On some level, it's maybe irrelevant, um, because what we do know is that repression was crucial uh, to undermining these organizations, and that was most certainly uh, the case during that 1927 strike, and it was it was the case with the IWW more generally. The union would the union have prospered were it not repressed? Probably not. But there's a reason these uh, these these people in government and these these big capitalists um, mobilized this repression against the organization. Um, a reason that underscores the important role that repression played uh, in um, in um, driving this organization into irrelevancy and in breaking uh, breaking the strike. Now the Colorado connections. Uh, interesting. I mean, there was a, a, you know, a fair bit of organizing by the IWW in Colorado and the beet fields uh, on the Eastern Plains uh, and some of the wheat uh, production, although that wasn't as prominent as it was a little bit further to the East. Uh, the most salient connection between the IWW of the 19-teens and 20s in Colorado is one you allude to, and that's the Western Federation of Miners and uh, Big Bill Hayward in you know? the Western Federation had uh, been very active in so-called hard rock mining in places like Colorado and throughout the Mountain West, really, and were at the center of um, some of the Colorado mine wars of uh, the late uh, 1890s and uh, the first decade of the 20th century. And through that process, through those struggles, uh, the Union developed... um, a strongly militant sensibility and and to some extent an element of radicalism about it. Uh, At the same time, Big Bill Hayward emerged as uh, a prominent leader of that organization and was in that capacity uh, when he called to order the convention the summer of 1905 at which the IWW was founded. In fact, he and others with the Western Federation of Miners brought into the early IWW the considerable membership of the Western Federation of Miners. They didn't stay. Uh, they, the Western Federation of Miners ended up in a rift with the IWW that became eventually became quite bitter, uh, but it was at the founding of the IWW, the largest affiliate uh, of that organization. and. Um, and Big Bill stayed in the iWW uh, and ended up at odds with his his former um his former fellow unionist or comrades in Western Federation of Miners.
3: All right, listeners, this is where we'll end our conversation. Be sure to join us in two weeks where we will pick this conversation back up. This has been the Labor Exchange on KGNU, Boulder, Denver, and Fort Collins. Our guest today is author and professor Ahmed White on his book Under the Iron Heel, The Wobblies and the Capitalist War on Radical Workers from the University of California Press. If you're looking to purchase a copy, I'd suggest the recently unionized Page One Books in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I've been your host, Robert Lindgren. Join us next week at the same time for La Lucha Sigue and in two weeks on May Day, May 1st, to hear more of our conversation with Ahmed White. The Labor Exchange is a member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Find more great labor radio at laborradionetwork.org. We'll end with an IWW song sung by Joe Glazier 50,000 uh, Lumberjacks. <laughs>
4: 50,000 lumberjacks, 50,000 packs 50,000 dirty rolls of blankets on their backs 50,000 minds made up to strike and strike like men For 50 years they've packed a bed but never will again Such a lot of devils, that's what the papers say
1: They've gone strike
4: for shorter hours and the raise in pay They left the camps, the lazy tramps, they all walked out as one They say they'll win the strike or put the bosses on the bum 50,000 wooden bunks full of things that crawl. 50,000 restless men have left them once for all. One by one they dared not say the hours are much too long. But they can shout it now because they're 50,000 strong. Such a lot of devils, that's what the papers say they had gone strike for shorter hours to handle, raise and pay They left the camps, the lazy tramps, they all walked out as one They say they'll win the strike or put the bosses on the bomb take a tip mr boss plan some cozy rooms six or eight spring beds in each with towels sheets and brooms shower baths for men who work will keep them well and fit a laundry too and drying room would help a little bit and get some dishes white and clean good pure food to eat see that cook has help enough to keep the table neat tap the bell for eight hours work treat the boys like men and 50,000 lumberjacks may come to work again. Such a lot of devils, that's what the papers say. They've gone straight for shorter hours, and the raise and pay. They left the camps, the lazy tramps, they all what out as one.
2: They say they'll win the strike or put the bosses on the bum.
3: This has been the Labor Exchange.
0: Long-haired preachers come out every night to tell you what's wrong and what's right. But when asked about something to eat, they will answer in voices so sweet. You will eat by and by in that glorious land above the sky. I'm Rick Smith,
2: and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1998. If you were trying to drive to work on that Tuesday morning in midtown Manhattan, you were probably late. 40,000 construction workers took to the streets in a massive protest. They shut down more than 200 building projects. They were rallying against the use of non-union labor. The New York Daily News declared Midtown shutdown and pending projects hammered by protests. The New York Post's front page headline was Midtown Mayhem. The protest snarled traffic outside of the Metropolitan Transportation Authority on Madison Avenue. The MTA had awarded a $33 million-dollar contract to build a subway command center to a non-union employer, Roy K. Incorporated. The construction workers chose to hold their demonstration during rush hour to make the most impact. One organizer explained, we wanted to make the biggest statement possible. The workers chanted, what do we want? Union! When do we want it? Now! Some of the protesters decided to march to the job site. At 10th Avenue, they were met by police in riot gear and police on horseback. One protester estimated that there were 2,000 police officers, including snipers on rooftops. Up to that point, the protest had been relatively peaceful, but then the police demanded the protesters disperse and began to spray mace into the crowd of construction workers and supporters. One protester was kicked in the head by a horse. Numerous police and protesters went to the hospital for injuries and exposure to the police mace. 38 people were rounded up and arrested after the protest small pickets against the mta project continued but the non-union contractor who had the power of new york city mayor rudolph giuliani's police force to back them up would not be moved labor history in two brought to you by the illinois labor history society and the rick smith show
1: And that is it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app. Even better, if you like what you hear, and we sure hope you do, please like it in your podcast app and pass it along. Leave a review. That really helps more folks to find the show. Labor History in 2 is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. That's a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Very special thanks this week to Labor Exchange, Colorado's only labor-focused radio show, airing Mondays at 6 p.m. Mountain Time on KGNU Community Radio in Boulder, Colorado. You can hear parts two and three of today's interview at laborradionetwork.org. Just search for Labor Exchange. Labor History Today is produced by the Cal Manavitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Carlock. Thanks so much for listening. Keep making history. And see you next time.